Show us your glory, show us your glory. In wonder and surrender we fall down. Show us your glory, show us your glory. Let every burning heart be holy. Shall we 
Christ's balls will sing. Great are you, Lord. It's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise. We pour out our praise. It's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise. We pour out our praise. Great are you, Lord. Great are you, Lord.
your presence. Have you felt his presence this morning? Amen. Holy Spirit, you are welcome. Come flood this place and feel the atmosphere. Your glory, God, is what our hearts long for. that you would continue, Lord, to be in this place. Anoint the speakers. Anoint our blessings over our children and the fellowship that we have. We give you all the glory, honor, and praise. B'shem Yisholam Hashem, the name of Jesus, the Messiah. Amen. All right. What a great time of praise we've had this morning. God is great, is he not? And the Spirit is here amongst us, is he not? All right. We have a few things that we need to be praying about and some praise things, so you all can sit down. Uh, this is going to be your time to, to pray and lift things before the Lord. Just as a reminder, uh, some people, some individuals here have started a prayer time at 10 o'clock here on Saturday mornings that meets in the room across from the where you have Oneg. So you are welcome to come and join them at 10 o'clock for prayer, uh, to pray for the service, to pray for whatever God puts on your heart. We need to remember to keep praying for Monty. He's still traveling up in Oregon. He'll be back this week. So we need to pray for a safe journey for him as he comes home. We need to pray for Kim's mom, Judith. She had a slight accident this past week while she was gone, and she dropped a drill on her calf, and the bit, so she ended up with three stitches in her calf, so we need to pray for quick healing for Kim's mom. And, and we need to keep remembering to pray for Patrice and her knee that it continues to heal. She has a doctor's appointment coming up, and they'll evaluate it and determine when she will be able to go back to work. We also need to pray for her as she is putting in an application for 501C for a ministry she wants to start uh, to dealing with battered women and children and abused and I don't know what all. But anyway, you can talk to her about it. But we just need to pray for her that, uh, that she'll be able to get that. A couple of praise things. The several couples here who are celebrating anniversaries this coming week. The Stewarts are going to be are celebrating their anniversary. And uh, the Porches are celebrating their anniversary coming up this week also. Yes, yep. So praise God for that. 
especially since we live in a world today where marriage doesn't quite have the same meaning it did for when I was young. But All right. Uh, I was reading on, the, on the, this past week on some things going on in Israel. We really need to be praying for Israel. Uh, recently, about 200 rabbis signed a petition uh, against all the gay movement and the gay rights and what's going on in Israel. And once they did that, uh, 600 rabbis signed a petition saying they're in favor of the gays and homosexuality. And so we really need to be praying for Israel. Uh, they're not immune from what's going on in this world, even though they're God's chosen people. And Satan is truly working harder there than probably anywhere else. So we really need to pray for Israel. I, my understanding is that Tel Aviv is kind of like the San Francisco of the United States. So keep them in your prayers. Uh, that God will intervene there. We also need to pray for Ephraim and Lauren this week. They're traveling, going on, I guess, like a vacation to the beach. And so we need to pray for Ephraim and Lauren as they travel. And Chris is going to Dallas this week. He's going to be teaching down there in this coming weekend. So we need to remember to pray for Chris. And we praise God for his time as he's back again. He was down in Texas this past couple of weeks. And uh, he was down there at a conference and leading the singing down there. So we thank God that he's back safely. That we need to pray for him. And that uh, the message that he brings next week when he goes will be the one that God has, has put on his heart. And we need to pray for uh, uh, Daniel as he brings the first five today instead of Gabe. And then, and then Ephraim as he brings the message today. So this is your time. So I'm going to turn it over to you and give you a few minutes to pray for the things that God has put on your heart.
Father, we thank you for the privilege that we have not only to gather here together, but to pray and to lift up to you those petitions that you've put on our hearts. As we think of all the people around the, around the world who gather in your name, risking their lives to do so, we thank you that we can freely come, unafraid to come and worship you. So we thank you for that. We thank you for the healing that you're doing and in, in the people that are here, for the healing that's taking place in Joe's shoulder and uh, how he's able to, with the rotator surgery that he had and how he's able to raise his arm all the way up. So we thank you for, the, for that and ask that you continue to heal him and for Patrice and her knee. And we thank you for the healing that's taking place there and for Kim's mom and the healing that you're doing in her calf. So we thank you for that. We thank you that uh, Karen is out of the hospital and the next surgery went well and the healing that you're doing there for her also. You're a mighty God. You're our great physician. You are the creator of the universe. Everything that exists, exists only because you allow it to exist. Every breath that we take, we take because you give us that ability. So we come before you, Father, to thank you for your great love for us, for your care for us. We ask you now that you would accept our time this morning of worship that would be pleasing to you. And we pray for Daniel and Ephraim as they come and give the messages that they might speak to us through your words. Give us ears to hear, open hearts to accept what it is that you have to say to us this morning. And we thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Thank you, Carlos. Shabbat Shalom. It's good to be with you here today. So, I got the surprise announcement that I'm doing the first five this morning. So, we'll see how this goes. Uh, so, uh, this week's uh, parasha, this week's readings uh, is Rie. Okay, and uh, it comes from uh, Deuteronomy chapter 11 through 16. And in this, it starts off, this, this Hebrew word that we have, Rie, that... Uh, that tells us about this, this uh, portion of reading, it starts with the word see. And this is what rie means. Specifically, it says in, in chapter 11, verse 26 of Deuteronomy, see, I am setting before you a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you listen to the commandments of Adonai your Elohim, which I am commanding you today. And the curse, if you do not listen to the commandments of Adonai your Elohim, but turn aside from the way which I am commanding you today, by following other gods which you have not known. So the first, star, the first verse which sets the tone for this, this portion of, of Scripture talks about looking, seeing, and that it's with that vision, the seeing, that we are to identify whom we are to follow and what is to follow that. In other words, it's about spiritual idolatry. And we can only see spiritual idolatry if we have our eyes opened 
if you understand what I'm saying. Now, the interesting thing about this, this is certainly not the first time that this word re'eh occurs in Scripture. In fact, it's eight times in the very first chapter of Genesis. And Adonai saw, and it was good. And he saw, and it was good. And he saw, and it was very good. Okay? So, but this, here we are given a Scripture which attaches vision Seeing eyes with being able to follow the blessing of keeping his commandments or the curse of not keeping his commandments and further pursuing other gods in our lives. Now, we see this repeated, this concept of the eyes actually leading to where your path will go in Genesis chapter 3. This is the, the fall, right? It says in verse 5, For Elohim knows in that day, this is, this is the words of the serpent speaking to uh, Chava, to Eve. For Elohim knows in that day you will eat from it, and your eyes will be opened. You will be like Elohim, knowing good and evil. In other words, being able to choose because your eyes see there's a blessing and a curse. Two verses later, after she ate and she gave it to her husband, it says, then the eyes of both of them were opened. Just as the serpent said they would be, right? Only it doesn't say that they knew good and evil. It says that they knew that they were uncovered, naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. See, here's the thing. If we are not seeing and following his instructions which lead to blessing, then we expose ourselves after a fashion. And we're open for things in the world that may come against us. It then says in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 7, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear Adonai and turn away from evil. Once again, eyes attached with where you're going and what the consequences will be. We see this repeated in Matthew chapter 6, verses 22 and 23, when Yeshua says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? In other words, if your life is producing that which is darkness because your eyes are in the wrong place, then how dreadful that is. Now, to bring this all full circle, we see then that there's a, an instruction in Numbers. Numbers chapter 15, verses 38 through 40 says something. It says, Speak to the sons of Israel and tell them that they shall make for themselves tassels under the corners of their garments throughout their generations. And that they shall put on the tassel of each corner a cord of blue. It shall be a tassel for you to look at. And remember all the commandments of Adonai. So as to do them and not follow after your own heart and your own eyes. After which you played the harlot, spiritual idolatry. 
so that you may remember to do all my commandments and be holy to your Elohim. Why? Because then we will receive the blessing and not the curse. So it's all about what we are looking at, how we then identify what is in the path before us. And it's about making sure that we are pursuing Him and not pursuing those things that lead us into spiritual idolatry. So let us covenant with one another today and say, I will keep my eyes firmly fixed upon Him who has sanctified me, who has redeemed me, who has set me free from those things that I was looking at before. And may I be set free from those things and may my vision be cast upon Him. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the instruction that we receive from it. We thank you that you are such a blessing to us, that you have created the entire earth that we might dwell with you. You are so good to us. And you simply ask us to keep our eyes fixed on you. So, Father, may we do so. May we firmly fix our gaze upon you and not waver one direction or the other, but instead, as your word says, may it become a lamp unto our path and a light unto our feet as our eyes diligently search for that light. Father, we submit ourselves to you and we pray these things in the name of your son, Yeshua. Amen. And now let's bring forth the children. It's time to bless the kids. Bow your heads with me. Father, I lift up these children to you this morning, and I just thank you for the wonderful, amazing blessing that each one of them is to all of us. Father, may you make the men and women both strong leaders in their household, leaders in their congregations, prayer warriors, and people who serve with humility and righteousness and diligence. May you always keep Yeshua at the forefront of their mind, the reason that they do everything that they do. And may they always keep the weightiest commandments first and foremost, loving you and loving their neighbor. Father, thank you for blessing these children. Thank you for blessing us as a congregation with these beautiful children, Lord. May we learn from them, and may we take the task of raising them in your ways seriously. We love you, and we pray all of these things in Yeshua's name. Amen. Thank you, Daniel, for the first five. <clears throat> Shabbat Shalom, everyone.
Thank you for joining us here at HFF this morning. Beautiful day, beautiful weather, and lots of wonderful people to fellowship with. Amen. Let us go before the Lord, before the message. Amen. Heavenly Father, we come before you on this Sabbath day. We thank you for everything that you do in our lives, Lord, for bringing us to this place, a place where we can fellowship, we can worship your name in unison and one accord. Father, I pray that you would continue to lead us and guide us with your Holy Spirit in all things that we do. May we bless your name with our whole being, Father, for everything that you have done for us, Lord, for delivering us, for saving us, for redeeming us, Lord, choosing us from among all peoples and giving us the chance, the opportunity to worship you, to confess a faith in Messiah. Father, I pray now for this message. I pray that it is encouraging, strengthening to all the brethren, Lord, and that your words be the ones that are spoken today. We thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. This morning, I wanted to tackle something. Whenever I'm looking for what the message is going to be, I'm always just, my ear is kind of always just attuned to what I might hear, what I might see. And uh, it's amazing how the Lord sometimes opens a door for you or kind of opens your eyes in a certain way whenever you're kind of seeking direction. And the Lord did that this week for me with even my own words I love Facebook, and Facebook sometimes pops up a memory of something that you either, the post that you shared or a picture that you had, and it's great when you get to see like old pictures and you see how much your kids have grown when Facebook pops up a memory. And Facebook popped up a post that I wrote a while ago, and I, when I saw that, I was like, man, I, not, I'm not trying to toot my own horn in any way, shape, or form, but it was like, hey, that's actually pretty good. So that inspired the message today, and so I wanted to tackle today the big theological, profound word of redemption. Redemption is this word that I think we use We use quite often when we talk about the Messiah, we talk about our faith in believing in Yeshua of Nazareth, and he is our redeemer. He redeemed us, and he's also our savior, and he's also all, all of these things. And so it's like this is one of these words that we kind of latch onto, and we say, man, he, he's our redeemer, that I have been redeemed. He is our redemption. But sometimes I question, do we truly know what that means? Do we truly know what redemption is, what it represented in the ancient world, what it should represent to us today, and truly what is the concept of redemption? Because in the modern day, secular, you know, you might say, oh, we're going to redeem something. And if you are thinking about it, you're like, when do you actually use that word? Well, it's always when you have like a coupon or something. And you're going to go and you have a piece of paper that that gives an indication that something belongs to you or you can get something or collect something and then you can go and redeem it. I remember as a kid, I think this came back a number of years ago, but I remember redeeming Pepsi points. You remember when the points came on all the Pepsi on the on the caps and the bottles and on the boxes? And I remember I collected a bunch of those things. When we started the ministry, we drank a lot of soft drinks, probably shouldn't have, but drank a lot of Pepsi. Mountain Dew was my favorite. And so I collected a lot of Pepsi points. And I remember back in those days, you, the, now everything's online. Now everything you put a code in online, it keeps track of your points, digital credits for whatever you have. But back then, no, you actually had to collect the points, cut them out, put them in an envelope, and mail them to Pepsi company, and then with you know enough for shipping and handling, and they had a little catalog, and then he had, they sent you back something. I remember I got a Mountain Dew hat, a set of Mountain Dew playing cards, I got like a set of uh, sports balls, a football, a basketball, um, and a soccer ball that had Pepsi logos on it, and I redeemed my Pepsi points that I collected 
for a number of over a course of a period of time. And that's what we might do when we think of we're redeeming something, where it's actually you have something and you're exchanging. And that's really, that is something that uh, it means and represents. So that it's, there's an exchange. You might have heard it said, redeeming something is almost like a buyback. And that actually is very applicable to the spiritual concept. If you look up the definition of redemption, you'll find two definitions that kind of pop up first, right there, first page of Google when you type it in. What is the redemption definition? The first one is the action of saving or being saved from sin, error, or evil. That's wonderful. That's the Christian concept of redemption. We have redemption. Except doesn't that sound pretty much like the same definition for salvation? You're saved? Yeah. I mean, it's like, do we, we use those words interchangeably. But we need to kind of dig in, what is, the, what is really going on here? What is the difference between those two words? Well, the second definition that pops up is this. The action of regaining or gaining possession of something in exchange for payment or clearing a debt. That's really what it more is about, is about regaining a possession, something that used to be yours and isn't yours anymore, in exchange for payment and the clearing of a debt. That's truly what redemption is. Now, this is really outlined for us in the Torah. We go back, and, and those of us who've been following, uh, being Messianic, being Hebrew roots, we look to the Torah, which the Torah has a great original definition for what redemption really is. The commandment comes from the book of Leviticus, chapter 25, where it talks about the redemption of property or redeeming something. Now, this whole chapter begins talking about the year of Jubilee. Now, that was the year of, of release. That was every 50 years that all debts were be forgiven. Actually, all debts were supposed to be forgiven every seven years on the Shemitah year. But then anything that would belong to somebody, a possession, if sold over the course of 50 years, at the end of the, each 50 years, it would be returned back to its original owner. And so then anytime something was sold, a possession was sold at that time, you would always factor in, well, how close are we to the Jubilee year so that I don't make sure that I don't lose out in this deal. I'm only going to sell, sell it to you for a certain amount of money because when the 50th year comes, it's going right back to you. So it was this way of, it was this economic structure that would ensure there was never any inflation, that anything that was ever sold, any possessions, any debts that were ever, everything was eventually forgiven. It was something you could count on. That's what the book, uh, chapter 25 of Leviticus, is about. So then all these stipulations about redemption are all kind of fall in line with that. Let me read here about the redemption of property, verse 23 of chapter 25, where it says this, The land shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine, belonging to God. You are strangers and sojourners with me. And in all the land of your possession, you shall grant redemption of the land. If one of your brethren becomes poor and has sold some of his possession, and if his redeeming relative comes to redeem it, then he may redeem what his brother sold. Or if a man has no one to redeem it, but he himself becomes able to redeem it, then let him count the years since its sale and restore the remainder to the man to whom he sold it that he may return to his possession. But he, if he is not able to have it restored to himself, then what was sold shall be, remain in the hand of him who bought it until the year of Jubilee. And in the Jubilee it shall be released, and he shall return to his possession. 
Something could be redeemed. You had to, you, you'd come into dire straits, you'd need some money, and you'd have property, and so then you would sell it to somebody else. And then at any point in time, you could be redeemed. It could be redeemed by you, should you become able to do so, gathering up enough money, buy it back. Or a relative, a near of kin, could go and it could be purchased for you. Now, the main thing that this commandment connects to, and if you haven't already paralleled it in your scripture or study Bible, this connects to the story of Ruth and Boaz. When Ruth, when her husband had died, or in the, in the sale, he had sold his property, a man of Israel. And then when she comes back, there's this property that needs to be bought back. And so she finds a near of kin, Boaz. Boaz purchases the field, the land that was sold, and in the process also redeems Ruth into his family. And so it's this beautiful story of redemption, of how these things, this possession, and then a near of kin was able to buy them back into the family, into the fold. It's the story of redemption. And that's what it and that's kind of how it worked. So that's the connection here. The Hebrew word there for redeem is uh, ga'al in the Hebrew. It's made of a gimel, an aleph, and a lamed. I always like looking at the Hebrew letter meanings. It's, this one's kind of interesting. It's almost like the strength of the shepherd, and then it's like the, the gimel represents a camel or to carry something. And so there is kind of this weird sort of mysterious meaning deeper in the letters that has something to do with the strength of the shepherd. I always love that every time that lamed shows up in Hebrew words because I immediately start thinking of Messiah, who is the good shepherd. The next, as the passage continues in Leviticus chapter 25, it continues on here toward the end, and it gets to the point now where we're not just talking about the possession of somebody, or or the possession that belongs to them, but they themselves have to, they have nothing left to sell. They have no land, they have no possessions, so then they themselves have to sell themselves to clear a debt. And this is where we get into the concept of when someone sells themselves, and we're talking about slavery, if you will. Verse 47 of chapter 25 says this, Now if a sojourner or a stranger comes to you, becomes rich, and one of your brethren who dwells by him becomes poor, and sells himself to the stranger or the sojourner close to you, or to a member of the stranger's family, after he is sold, he may be redeemed again, One of his brothers may redeem him, or his uncle, or his uncle's son may redeem him, or anyone who is near of kin to him in his family may redeem him, or if he is able, he may redeem himself. Thus he shall reckon with him who bought him. The price of his release shall be according to the number of years from the year that he was sold to him until the year of Jubilee. It shall be according to the time of a hired servant for him. So this gets into the idea that you've run out of possessions. To... Check, check. Then one person has to sell himself into slavery. And then he has to work for somebody. And he has to then labor for another master. And then if he can find somebody, if somebody from his family has the means, has the money, he can come and redeem his brother, his near of kin, his cousin, his nephew, or anybody who's close, uh, close relative can buy him back out of that. And that's what you would obviously hope for if there was, if, 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 now in today's modern day, we don't really deal with slavery as much, though it does exist still in the world today. 
And slavery itself, in the, in the, when it's not just a hired servant, but when it actually is that people have purchased other people and forced them to work, slavery as a whole over the course of mankind is one of the greatest atrocities we have ever faced and ever seen humans do to one another. When we look at human life, and there are people that see human life as nothing more than a commodity and a possession, something to be sold, something to be traded, something that can be thrown away if they so fit, if they so desire. And that's what some people in this world and through the course of history and time, that that's what they value human life. I would stand up and say, I don't agree with that at all in any way, shape, or form, that human life is precious and valuable no matter who it is, no matter what, it, what they've gone through or what they've done, human life is something to be valued. And so the concept of slavery that some people have executed throughout human history is one of the greatest atrocities we have ever seen or heard about in the course of time. In here in the scripture, like I said, this is all having to do with, it's all surrounding the year of jubilee, the year of release. Where even if you ever had to do this, even if you ever ran out of all means to support yourself and you had to sell yourself to work for somebody, there still was hope the year of Jubilee. There still was a hope that all of this would be forgiven, you would be able to return back to your land, and that's why that, that almost was the way in which somebody would agree to the idea of, you know what, it's only 10 years to the year of Jubilee, I have nothing to my name, I am going to go, I'm going to sell myself, work in this, and it's only going to take 10 years, and then it can be cleared. Then I can get back to square one. And you always, every person had that hope in ancient days. The real problem is, the year of Jubilee, the Shemitah year, that is one of the commandments that all of Israel failed horribly and miserably to keep in any way, shape, or form when they entered into the land. There is no understanding of when the Jubilee is, even to, today, we, there's no record of them truly keeping this in the way that it was meant to be kept according to the law of Moses. What they did is they started charging interest to their brethren or they started to look at the means of, of ways to get more money in the process whenever you bought a possession or sold a possession or whatever it was. The scripture here emphatically says you're not to charge interest to your brother and this was supposed to be a means in which everybody received a blessing in the current economic structure. It was never kept. And today, there's not even the remotest idea of a year of jubilee in the secular world anywhere in the world. As we sit today, there is no hope for any kind of thing such as a year of release that anything that you do, sell, any debt, you're going to owe it to your life and you actually, your children's children are going to have to pay that debt if you make some bad financial decisions. There is no hope of a jubilee. It wasn't supposed to be that way because God's commandments made it to where it's like, we can work with this. We can work with this, this idea of servanthood and, and selling possessions. And every 50 years, we'd get to come back to the thing that we originally owned. We have no hope for that. So then, throughout human history, when there has been such a thing as slavery, anybody who's working that, that, that job that's a slave to that master or on that plantation, they don't necessarily have any hope that they will ever be able to get out of it. It doesn't exist. Now, luckily, there have been people, and there's been wars fought over it, and there's been all kinds of things where there has been stories of redemption when slaves have been set free. One of those things that'll make you tear up when you see what's, where somebody came from and then what they were able to make of themselves. It's incredible. 
Now, like I said, today, this day and age, we, we don't really have a, a great concept of slavery. We don't have to deal with that on day in, day out. However, spiritually, those of us that are believers, and this phrase is a little cliche, we are all slaves to sin. We're slaves to sin. Now, I mean, like I said, that is a, that's a cliche statement when somebody says, it's like, you're a slave to sin, so then you have to be redeemed out of it, and you have to be saved, and that's why you have to, to do that. And, and the problem is, is when you're talking to a young person, or you're talking to somebody who thinks they're okay with their life, they don't understand this concept of being a slave to sin. They don't understand it. They're just like, I'm, I'm fine with my life. Why do I need a redeemer? And then, like I said, we don't even understand this concept of redemption and slavery. We don't have to deal with it, some of us. We kind of ignore the subject. But the thing is this, spiritually, let me see if I can spell it out for you. Spiritually. I didn't say this physically happened, but spiritually, this is what happened. Somewhere in your life, in the course of your life, you did something you weren't supposed to do. You saw something you weren't supposed to see. And in the spiritual realm of things, you were hauled in, stripped of everything, all of your clothes, and you were lined up in a slave market. And a master of sin came up and examined you, took a look at you. Maybe that master was anger. So anger showed up. Gave you a little once over and said, yeah, I'll take him. Satan brokered the deal. Sold you for a plug nickel, a plastic straw, and a sour apple Jolly Rancher. Which is the devil's favorite flavor, by the way. And you were sold. And then you work the plantation of the master of anger. And you are a slave to that master. And in the slave trade, other masters show up. Master of greed. Takes a look at that one right there. Yeah, you look like kind of a white-collar kind of guy. I'll take that one. Lust. I'll take those. I'll take those young people right there. Gluttony. Bitterness shows up. Bitterness has a really big plantation. A lot of people on it. The work is hard there. Anxiety. As I listed those off, some of you probably, no, it, it, it did. You probably knew exactly who your master is in the realm of sin as I listed those off. Some of us don't have to deal with certain ones, but others, we know exactly what plantation we work on. We know exactly what master we serve and what liar we work for. That is how it is in the spiritual realm. You were brought in, the mistake that you made, and spiritually, the devil brokered the deal, and you were sold to sin. It kind of puts it into perspective. We don't have to deal with that. We, we've seen the, the shows. We've seen the, the, the movies. We read the history books. We kind of know what it is, and we think we don't have to deal with that in our day-to-day -day lives, but spiritually, that's exactly what's going on, being made into a slave to sin. All right, I'm going to take a little bit of a sidebar here, take a little humorous uh, spin on it here. Here in our scripture, it said this uh, idea that it's like, if one is able to redeem himself, 
Now, when you sold yourself into slavery, and then you're suddenly working for another master, where are you ever going to supposed to find the time to work for something for yourself, to gain the money then back, to then save that up, to then pay your master off, and, and, and hence, redeem yourself? How is that supposed to work? When has that ever really, truly happened? This whole idea of redeeming ourselves is kind of a funny thing. When I thought about this, when I read this, something did pop into my mind of redeeming oneself. And that was the movie Dumb and Dumber. In the movie Dumb and Dumber, there's a couple of friends that are traveling to Aspen, Colorado, Lloyd and Harry, and they're on their way trying to go to Aspen, Colorado. Lloyd makes a wrong turn. Harry gets all mad. They have this big falling out, and they part ways. And the next thing you know, Lloyd is then coming up on a tiny little motorbike designed for a kid that he traded the van they were driving Pulls up, and he's like, I can get 70 miles to the gallon on this hog. And Harry looks at him, and he says, just when I could, didn't think you could get any dumber. You go and pull a thing like this. And totally redeem yourself. And then they smile, they try to high-five, he hops on the back, and they make their way toward Aspen. That's this, it's, it makes no sense in one redeeming himself, because the financial value of the van that he traded for and the bike that he ended up with makes no sense whatsoever. But it's a joke. So when you say somebody redeemed themselves, if you're a little movie nerd like me, you might think of this little, this funny little scene right here. Any other times that you think about, when, when do you ever think about the concept of one redeeming oneself? As a sports fan, I also think of this. You, you hear this actually in, in sports all the time. Say you got a quarterback in a, in a football game, and he throws an interception, puts his team in a hole. Then later in the game, he then th- throws the game-winning touchdown, and then they win. And then the announcer will say the quarterback redeemed himself for the previous mistake. And that's the concept here is you're, you're, you're covering for a previous mistake. You have to go to areas and realms and scenarios that are pretty arbitrary to find instances of someone redeeming themselves. The idea that you can redeem yourself should not be your first go-to if you're trying to get redeemed. Because it just doesn't happen. Like I said, in the slave market, how in the world would somebody ever gain enough money to pay back the debt that he owes to his master to redeem and free himself? You think about the scenario and it's be like, this never happened. How did that, that doesn't work. You have to go to like other concepts and you got to go to sports and movies and silly things to this idea. And so that's why I take a humorous approach to this. And you should too. This idea that you can redeem yourself, it's kind of a joke. It really is. Now, that's not to say that some people can work really hard and, and, and pull that off, but that is few and far between, and that is not your go-to source of redemption. Yourself is not that. It's not going to happen. I did think about using this for my title slide, but I didn't want you looking at Jim Carrey all teaching long. Redeeming yourself is not the go-to. What you actually need and what you really need, and that's why it's listed first, in the scripture that says what you really need is you need a redeemer. You need somebody with the means to come in and redeem you. That's what you need. It's somebody that is near of kin to you that you, that you really need. And I like to go a little bit a step further. The best chance that you're going to find somebody that's going to help you in your situation, whatever circumstance you find yourself in, is going to be somebody that you are in covenant with. 
covenant, some kind of covenant. A family structure is a covenant. It's a type of covenant. It's a relationship that you have with somebody else. Sometimes you're in a covenant that you didn't even choose. All of us who are ancestors of the ancients, we didn't choose to be in the covenant with God, but they made a covenant with God, and then they said that all of our descendants after us will be in covenant. Sometimes you don't even choose to be in that covenant. Same way with your family. You don't choose who your brother and sister are or who your cousins are. Sometimes you wish you could. But when it's all said and done, you are in a covenant with your family, and sometimes you're even in a covenant you didn't choose. That's actually for your benefit. It's actually a good thing. Because if you were born and didn't have any family, you'd have a hard time making it in this world. Especially as a little infant trying to get nourishment. doesn't work that way. We are a people that is not meant to be alone, that are meant to be in covenant. Now we can form covenants. We can make covenants of our own with other people too. And sometimes you have relationships that you establish a covenant with somebody else. And one of the biggest things about a covenant is that you join, you form with somebody else, and then you two become one. That if something happens to one, the other will help you with it. We do this with countries form alliances in this same way. So two countries have an alliance. One, another country, then makes war with one of the countries that's in the alliance. What is the responsibility of the other country in the alliance? To go to war for their ally. Go to war. They didn't start the war. They weren't even attacked. But it's their job to go to war for their covenant brother. That's how family is supposed to work. That's how family is supposed to work, is that when somebody attacks the family, you attack all of us. And you see, you see it sometimes, you see it in, in gangster movies and mob movies where it's all, they're all about family. And you see that and you're like, okay, that's organized crime, that's probably not what a family should be structured around. But at least they do under the, understand the concept of being in covenant with a family that you attack one of us, you attack all of us. That's what a family is supposed to do. And that's what anyone who is near of kin should be. That is everything that anybody who's in covenant with one another, that's how we should view it. So in the ancient times, when somebody had to sell themselves into slavery, usually what you do is you wouldn't even come to that point. If we were doing this family thing right, they would just sort of kind of be absorbed into the family and one wouldn't have to sell themselves to a stranger. But did we do everything right? Of course we don't. In this day and age, do we do it? Of course not. You talk about your crazy brother or your crazy cousin or the black sheep of the family that you're like, uh, you know, we say he's adopted. And it's like if something bad happens to that person, do we, do we go and help them to get out of the circumstance that they're in? Not usually. They made their bed, they can sleep in it. That is not what a family is supposed to do. Family is supposed to redeem one another. Somebody who's near of kin, who has, who's in covenant, whose heart, who loves this person, and I'm going to help them out of the situation that they're in. The, the most common con concept of this, and we probably ran into this, it's possible. How many of us were the really good kids that never got in trouble? 
Okay, which of us were kind of the ones who kind of the troublemakers who did get in trouble sometimes or whatever? Okay, not everybody raised their hand, so I know you didn't, you didn't raise your hand on the first one, so I know who you are. Man, that's pretty bad. I think I need to change my message now now that I'm thinking about it. Whenever you got in trouble as a little kid and you were in trouble, who got the call when you got in trouble? Mom, dad, they come. Now, it depends on how you grew up. It depends on all these things. There's some of us that might have had parents that said, you're dealing with that on your own. I'm not touching that. God forbid somebody ends up in jail, teenager, adolescent, maybe a young adult. You end up in jail. You got one phone call. You call mom or dad. And depending on some of our parents, they'd say, you're staying the night in jail. Pick you up in the morning. Others would say, I'm coming to get you. I got your back. Whether you did it or not, whether, whether, whether it, you were completely at fault, you knew, you felt somebody had your back. And a parent will, will do that for you. And, and actually, the, the, I had this conversation with my wife, and you can think about this yourself. If you got into absolute dire straits, car wreck, no money, in, the, in a hole somewhere, surrounded by in a bad neighborhood. I don't know how you got there, but just put yourself in the scenario here. Who is the one call you're making that's going to get you out of that? Do you have somebody that you would call, say, I, I screwed up bad, and I need some help? And somebody might drive three hours across the country to come and get you out of that situation. Do you have anybody like that? You might identify somebody like that and recognize the kind of relationship that you might have with somebody if somebody would do that for you. And if you don't know who that would be, you might need to strengthen some of your relationships because everybody needs somebody like that. Because like I said, there's not a whole lot of hope sometimes to redeem yourself out of those situations. It's good to have somebody, somebody on the other side, on the other line. Let's still spiritual metaphor here. You're on this side of the line. You're surrounded by enemies, accusers. You've got nothing to your name. You're beaten down. And somebody is on the other side where the grass is greener. And is there somebody on the other side that's going to come and get you, push away all the accusers and all that surround you, and bring you back over to the other side? Is there anybody that's going to do that for you? Yeshua did that for the woman that was accused of adultery in the temple. When he was down, he was writing in the dust of the tabernacle. Everybody asked, what was he writing in the tabernacle or in the floor of the tabernacle? And then there's all kinds of theories and concepts and things. All of them are all good when it comes to that story. What if he was drawing a line and he basically then went to the woman who was being accused. He said a couple of words. All the accusers left and all that was left was just him and her. And he redeemed her out of that that time in which she was just she was accused, and she drew a line. He went and got her, and he pulled her back onto the other side of the line. He redeemed her from that situation. Spiritually, we know who our Redeemer is. Physically, there's always the physical and the spiritual are always tied to one another. You might need to identify somebody in your life that would be able to do that for you. Usually, it's a family member. Maybe it's your brother. Maybe it's your parent. Now, when you get into a family of your own, you have a spouse, you have kids, you need to understand and recognize that what God has brought to you into your family, that you have that same sort of concept. 
If something happens to your children, they get themselves in trouble, even if it's their own fault, what are you going to do? Spouse. That's the concept of the, of the Redeemer here, is what they have to do is the Redeemer, if you're that person that's going to do that for somebody else, you need to understand what your job's going to be. Because you're going to have to do something for somebody else. You're going to have to take the blame for something you didn't do. You didn't get yourself in trouble. You didn't spend all that money. You didn't get arrested. But then you're going to go and you're going to then deal with the situation to bring somebody up out of that. You need to understand that you're going to have to do that. Here's something really interesting. That word ga'al that I said before redeem, the exact same Hebrew word, same vowel structure, same, same word ga'al also means defiled. So this is, let me see if I can spell this out or, or, or picture this for me. You have somebody who sold themselves to a, a master, slave trader, some nasty dump that somebody is in in, in struggle. And then a redeemer, he has to show up and he has to come. And he has to go into that horrible place. He's got to negotiate and deal with the scum of the earth that bought you and then pay a price or whatever it is, whether it's a financial debt or or work something out or, or, or restore something back to redeem you out of that. And you know, how do you think the redeemer feels after they do that for you? You're defiled. They're dirty. They have to go and they got to negotiate with this, this slave owner to get you out of the situation that you yourself put yourself in. The Redeemer has a dirty job. That even when they go and do the act of redemption and redeeming somebody, Gaal, they then become Gaal, defiled. It's a dirty job to be a Redeemer. You have to take the blame for something you didn't do. Sometimes you have to be the scapegoat. You got to take one for the team. That somebody had to, you, you had to do this. It wasn't even your fault. Maybe you're the leader. And this is the responsibility that falls on all the husbands and fathers. The leader has to take responsibility for what those under him did. If, there's a, if you have a military unit and, and, military, and, and you have some, some soldiers that misbehave, who's the general going to? The leader of the unit. And he has to take responsibility for the soldiers that were under his command. And as a leader of a household, you have to take responsibility for those things. It happens in the business world too. Some sort of mistake takes place, and this whole group of people are going to lose their entire job because of some mistake that happened at work. And so then instead, the manager, the leader... He falls on his sword, and he becomes the scapegoat, and he takes the blame. He loses his job, but all the other ones get to stay. He redeemed his co-workers out of the mistakes that they themselves made. Like I said, we have all these phrases that all kind of mean the same thing. We, you've heard them all before. Being a scapegoat, falling on your sword, taking one for the team. This happens also in just other interactions that we have with other people. You get into an argument with somebody. How many of you have ever heard the phrase, you can be right or you can be happy? 
choose. There are some people that if you want to be right, you can be dead right, and then you're not going to have a friend anymore. You can get into an argument with your spouse, and you might be in the right, but you know what? I'm going to take the blame on this one. I'm sorry. Whatever mistake I made, I'm going to take the blame. I'm going to be the one to apologize. I will be the one who redeems the situation. These are all metaphors, all these things. When you say scapegoat, nobody literally is the scapegoat that was commanded in the Torah. Nobody is committing suicide and falling on their sword in these situations. And whenever you do, that, that person, they become defiled. They get made an example of. And then somebody talks about that person and says, yeah, that person, yeah, they, it's like they're the ones that, you know, you, that really bad thing that happened at that business, that person was the one that got fired. So it was probably his fault. Even if it's not true. You get hung out to dry. You get strung up as an example for all to see of what happens when you make that kind of mistake. Those are all metaphors that we say when you're hung out to dry, strung up as an example. Those are metaphors for us in our modern day, but a literal reality for the relationship between God and man. Literally, God and His Son, our Messiah, was strung up as an example, hung out to dry, mounted to a stake, and literally did that for a mistake He didn't do. Why? Because He was in covenant with us. Because He made a covenant with our forefathers that he would take the punishment for the breaking of the covenant. We sinned. We deserved death. We played the harlot. We were in covenant with him. We walked away. We broke the covenant. We committed spiritual idolatry, adultery. And then he comes along and paid the punishment for the thing he didn't do. If you go to the prophet Hosea, chapter 3, Lord always works in mysterious ways. Our brother Daniel, he quoted this on Facebook yesterday. I was just looking at this passage for my teaching here. Hosea, chapter 3, only has five verses in it. It's kind of interesting. It kind of stands out in your scripture when you see a chapter of the Bible that only has five verses. It says this, Then the Lord said to me, Go again. Love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery, just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel who look at other gods and love the raisin cakes of the pagans. So I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and one and a half omers of barley. And I said to her, you shall stay with me many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So too will I be towards you. For the children of Israel shall abide many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or teraphim. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. This is the situation here. To the prophet. Go and love a woman 
your wife that up and walked out, left you, play the harlot, married somebody else, go and get her for the price that it is to redeem her, bring her back into your house and say, you're not going to love another anyone else, you're going to love me, for I love you, and we are going to be back in covenant again. How many people in this day and age, somebody who's married and the spouse walks out on them, goes and marries somebody else, sleeps with somebody else, walks away, and how many of those original that spouse, you're going to go into the place where they are, bring them back out, and bring them back into covenant with you. Not in this day and age. They, uh, she walked out on me. Never going to get her back. I guess I'll find somebody else. Somebody walks out on somebody. And this is the return, and this is how God loves his people, Israel. Even if his spouse, his bride, walked out on him to serve other gods, to follow other commandments, he goes to where she is and he still brings her back, pays the price that is owed to her to redeem her out of her situation and bring her back into covenant. We wouldn't do that in our day and age. But that's what God does, and that's what he did. I heard this great uh, story here from, from another pastor, so I've got to give credit to, credit to the mega pastor that, that said this. And I think it was Alfred Morris of uh, Gateway Church. And he said this, that there was a conversation between God the Father and his son, Yeshua. Now, Christian concept, I'm not here to talk about the plurality of God and Father, Son, Holy Spirit or anything like that. But we do have scriptural context of God sometimes talks to himself and has conversations with himself. And that this was the idea that God said to his son, Yeshua, and he said, you know what? Your bride, I'm sorry to tell you, but she sinned. She walked away. And she needs to die because the wages of sin is death. And that's just what it's going to have to happen. Your bride has sinned. Your bride has walked away, played the harlot, and has broken the covenant. And that's what we got to do. And then the son, Yeshua, spoke back to his father and said, I will do something about that. I will be the redeemer for the one that I'm in covenant with. And I'm going to go pay the price of what is owed to the person I'm in covenant with. And I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't do it. But I'm going to step up and I'm going to be the redeemer. And in the greatest act of redemption, our husband, spiritual husband, died, strung up for the world to see, fell on his sword, took one for the team, was the scapegoat, and he took the blame for something he didn't do. And because of that, we are redeemed. 
Heavenly Father, we come before you on this Sabbath day. We thank you for this time, this Sabbath. We thank you, Lord, for everything that you do in our lives. We thank you, Lord, for choosing us from among all peoples and for paying that price that was owed. We have sinned, Father, and the wages of sin is death. But you, who we are in covenant with, our near of kin, made himself low, defiled himself so that we could be redeemed, so that we could be set free from that sin. Father, we continue to make mistakes in our day-to-day lives. In our spare time, Father, even though we've professed a faith to you, even though we've declared you are our master, Father, in our spare time, we go back to the plantation where we once served. And we continue to make mistakes each and every day. Father, you continue to draw a line in the sand. You continue to remove from us enemy and avenger, Lord. You continue to remind us, Lord, we are in covenant with you. May we someday be able to repay that debt. May we reckon it with you, not with those that we sold ourselves to, but reckon with you, Lord, our devotion that we owe our lives to you because it is you who has now purchased us and redeemed us out of the place and the situation, even if it was a mistake and a place of our own doing. Even if it was from a bed that we made ourselves, Father, you still go and redeem us from that place. Father, may we remember that. May we truly understand what it is that as you were the act of redeemer in our case, Father, may we truly know what that is and what the price that you paid for us to be able to stand free and redeemed. May we be encouraged and strengthened as we leave this place, Father. Pour out your protection upon us on the Sabbath day. We thank you, Lord, for all the blessings that you give to us. In Yeshua's name, amen. Eyes, please. And the Lord spoke in Moshe and said, Tell Aaron and his sons, this is the way you shall bless the children of Yisrael. Shalom. 
May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of Yeshua the Messiah, the Prince of Peace. Shalom. God of creation There at the start Before the beginning of time With no point of reference You spoke to the dark And fleshed out the wonder of life And as you speak, a hundred billion galaxies are born. In the vapor of your breath, the planets form. And if the stars amaze the worship so light, I can see your heart and Follow the sound of your